Hey, everybody. It's Jackie Johnson, host of Natch Butte. We talk skincare, we talk makeup, we talk all things beauty. And my guest this week is Ariana Maddox. Hi. What do we talk about, Ariana? Oh, my gosh. We answer all of your questions. We do. We talk about how our dogs were in a Pharrell video together. We talk about... Um, exfoliation. Oh, we talk about exfoliation. We talk about uh, tanning, self-tanning. We talk about laser hair removal. We, we go there. We dive, do a deep dive in my makeup bag. We And Tom's. And Tom's. <laughs> and Tom's Sandoval's. So maybe check out Natribute this week and see what we're talking about. See you there. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T, T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. This is Neil Hamburger. Hey, uh, I I don't know if you podcast people even watch the news, but uh, it's a real catastrophe right now in the Philippines. They had a horrible typhoon, and it's, it's just a goddamn mess. Those folks need assistance. So Tim Heidecker and myself put together a little six-minute track, an exclusive MP3 titled Taco Bell Apple Tree, which Tim and I will send out to anyone who donates $10 or more to one of the many legit organizations offering relief down there. Go to feralaudio.com for all the details on how you can help. with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. Thank you for listening. If you haven't listened to the show before, it is just what the title there implies. It's a conversation with me. And I usually talk to someone who is a lot more interesting than me and awesome. And uh, today I talked to Rhonda Hughes, who is the founder of Hawthorne Books, which is an independent publishing company, obviously. And uh, it's a it's great. Um She's a very interesting woman. It's a very enlightening look into publishing and writers, and uh, it's uh, it's boy, if you like fucking reading, she's has a list of writers that you're gonna learn from about this. Uh, and before I forget, if you liked my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Check them out, lesblanks.com. And uh, I don't know. I've been I've been you know I'm confused. Uh, and I if if you want, you can email me about this and give a little advice to Dwyer. But uh, you can. Conversations with Dwyer at gmail.com is my email. Uh, I, I've, I wonder, like, when I do these intros and sometimes I uh, ramble on about my life, sometimes I'm like, do you people want to hear that or do you just want me to get to the meat of the, you know, you do you want to just listen to Rhonda Hughes? Do you want to hear my goddamn babble, like this babble that's going on right at this moment, right here? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm also tired. I bartend. You know that, don't you? I do not make my soul living off of the my witty remarks I say on stage or the the uh, you know this podcast. I am not a podcast millionaire. I bartend, and I'll tell you this: I don't know if maybe in a weird way, working in a bar is an, a way of studying uh, humanity or what's going on with our society, but if it is, if the people I get within my bar are uh, sort of an overview of what's going on in our culture, we are seriously fucked. <laughs> we are so screwed, and God should just let the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse jump on them goddamn ponies and get this finished. <laughs> it's just... Uh, 
I've noticed uh, a weird trend that, uh, and it's not that they're boozed up. People have gotten, I don't know if it's inarticulate or illiterate or dumb or what. Uh, People barely uh, articulate their words anymore. I got a lot of, hey, we don't get a... Like, I'm not kidding you. Like, it's that bad. Like, hey, can I... Yeah, It's this, like, weird sort of, like, I don't care about you, but I so don't care that I barely use the muscles in my mouth. <laughs> it's like... It's, and it's just... It drives me crazy. Or how people just um, assume because I, I'm a guy and I'm working in a bar and maybe the guy talking to me, well, he's a guy that I'm going to be on board with any sexist bullshit that he decides to spout forth from his mouth. It's amazing. It's amazing. Like, it's like, oh, hey, I'm a dickhead who uh, has issues with women. So uh, I'm sure all guys hate women, right? And, you know, I was raised by my mother. So I have a respect and admiration for women and what what you go through. Uh, except for my mother. She was a terrible mother who uh, instilled um, a, a heavy death complex and abandonment issues <laughs> upon me. Uh, so, you know, but other than her, man, I love women. Um, well, uh, well, let's get to uh, Rhonda Hughes. And uh, don't forget to e- email me there. Uh, Rhonda Hughes, really great interview. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. How did you come about to start Hawthorne Books? I mean, that you, you're the founder, is that correct? Yes. Um, my background is in um, print sales, and I worked as a production manager for Chopin Printing Company. And our clients were um, were art book publishers and like Chronicle Books and Gibbs Smith. And so I kind of got into the book world that way. And then after being a production manager, I was the director of sales for an overseas printing corporation. And so in 1992, I left that job and started a business called Print Vision. And I'm a print broker, and I still make books for other publishers, like Gibbs Smith is one of my accounts. I'm working on a uh, French cookbook series for them, and right now we're on souffles. And the prior books were eclairs and sauces, just a great series. And then Hawthorne, I started in um, 2001 with a fellow graduate student, and I've since bought her out, and it's just me. And was there some sort of, um, were you disillusioned with, say, the, I don't know if you would call it the mainstream publishing or big corporate publishing? Was there some sort of... No, you know, I have to be honest. I wasn't, I didn't start it because I was disillusioned with mainstream publishing. I've been a voracious reader all my life. And I um, revered those companies, you know, like Penguin and Random House and Echo. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be a publisher more than I wanted to be a printer. And I wanted to be an editor. And so in Portland, Oregon, there aren't many jobs like that. And so I'm kind of an entrepreneur and I thought I'll start my own. That's great. I just, uh, I, I asked that just because um, from looking at your website and, and knowing some of the, the authors that you publish, there's, I, I don't know, there's a, I hate this word, but it, there's a, a brand about it. Like there's a very, there's a lot of integrity, it seems, in, in everything about your, your company from even like your book manufacturing. And um, it just seems like there's something different about it. If, if I hope that doesn't sound crazy. <laughs> No, I take that as a compliment. That's great. I publish the books that I like to read, quite honestly. I mean, people and agents will always ask me, well, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for what I like to read. And I like stories that might deal with subject matters that are edgy, I guess. You know, like um, our spring season consisted of a book, I call it, First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and a baby carriage. We had three titles, and the first one was The Next Scott Nadelson, and it's about how his fiancée left him a month or two before the wedding for another woman. 
And then the second title in that um, season was called Wedlocked, and it's by Jay Ponteri. And it's a book about how he falls in love with a barista and how it affects his marriage. And the third book was Holding Sylvan by Monica Wiselowska. And it's about how she and her husband um, have their first child and he dies 38 days after birth. Jesus Christ. And so, right. So those are, that's one season. And usually I don't go that heavy for one season, but those are the kinds of books that appeal to me as a reader. But then I have Love and Terror on the Howling Plains of Nowhere by Poe Ballantyne. And that's just a kind of defies genre. It's a memoir, but it's also a bit of true crime and it's a good story. And I think that's what all the books have in common is whether they're fiction or nonfiction, they're all damn good stories. Yeah. And I just finished that Poe Ballantyne book and it's, it's, I, it's just, there's, there's just such a warmth and humanity. Like it's weird because I've been reading a lot of him as of late, uh, and it's you feel like you know the guy. It's like which oh yeah. And I almost feel creepy because I'm like I feel like I'm like oh Poe's my friend, <laughs> but it's I have, <laughs> but it's like I've never met the guy. But it's like his writing is so amazing. It's just it, that I rarely feel that way from a writer. It's immediately accessible, don't you think? It's yeah, it's incredible, and it's and like you said, it defines genre because it is like this. Interesting memoir about his relationship with his wife and his child, who, and then uh, the 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 murder that happens in his, his very small town, and it's, but it's it's incredibly captivating. I, I I couldn't put it down. Oh, good. I like to hear that. But that's uh, but that's interesting too because you you say you know you publish um, stories that interest you, and I don't know. Uh, I I think that's great, but it's like I think uh, it seems like there's. Uh, from my brief attempts into that world, uh, there's it, it, there's just so many, um, like people are like, oh, you don't, we we're not looking for essay type stuff, and uh, like you publish a lot of essays, which is one of the things I, I noticed, and mm-hmm. and it's just uh, it's it's I think that's incredible because I I don't understand is is that how a lot of the publishing market is is they hot sort of trends? I think so. I think that if a publisher has the answer to a board of directors and their bottom line is their profit and loss statement, that they don't have the freedom that, I mean, not that I don't want to make profit, but um, they don't have the freedom. Like I get to make a decision. If I want to publish a book, I get to do it. I don't have to sell it to a marketing department. I don't have to sell it to a publicity department. I just have to have a gut feeling that I can sell it to an audience. Do you think that sort of like trend-based publishing is, does it, does that hurt literature overall? You know what? If somebody's going to read a book, I think that's fabulous. If somebody's reading, I'm all for it. And if they want to read a uh, girl with a diamond tattoo, I mean a dragon, excuse me. Diamond, <laughs> diamond a girl, with nicer. A, <laughs> girl with a dragon tattoo and they like series, they like thriller series. Right on. You know, I mean, I like that book. I read that book. I read all of them. I saw the movies. Um, I don't think that it hurts publishing. I think that there's a big enough market that we can all do what we like. And if somebody wants to be focused on series and what will sell and the bottom line uh, sales figures, that's cool. I mean, it just kind of paves the way for smaller presses like Hawthorne to put out different kinds of books because there will be an audience for these books as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, it's just like a lot of times when I go to the bookstore, uh, I just, I, immediately I'm just sort of affronted with a lot of, uh, you know, fluff (laughs) and, uh, it, and, uh, and like you see people getting uh, book deals off of Twitter and I'm like, that's, yeah. To me, I'm just like that's interesting because I'm like, you can write 140 characters, but can you spin that into you know 300 pages or whatever? Well, I think that's an example of marketing dictating um, editorial content, you know. And it's like that for me, that would be like the tail wagging the dog. And I understand those decisions. And if I were you know like the publisher of an imprint under Random House, I'd have to probably 
make some similar decisions. I mean, we have some very commercial books in our catalog, not because they're commercial, but because I like them. Like Brilliance is a novel, and it's by Anthony McCartan, and it's historical fiction. I love historical fiction, and Brilliance is about Thomas Edison and J.P. Morgan and um, the Channel Wars, you know, with Nikola Tesla and George Westinghouse. And what a lot of people in the United States don't know about Thomas Edison is he is the inventor of the electric chair. Um, He created the electric chair to show that uh, Tesla and Westinghouse's electrical current system was deadly. Did you know that? I I did not know that. Yes. So Brilliance is a novel that we published last fall. And I published that book because not only is it so well written, but it's a fascinating story. And that's maybe you could think that that was a little more commercial and an easier sell. I mean, Thomas Edison is easier to sell than a baby who's died. Yeah, I'm uh, I mean, and, and, you know, I definitely I'm not like knocking those kind of like more mainstream books. I'm just <clears throat> you just sometimes you walk in and it's just. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. And, I get uh, it. And I, my, I definitely don't have my personal tastes. I'm fully aware are not always the most um, mainstream. Because I, not to sound morbid, but like the dead baby book, I'm like, oh, that's like, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll totally read that. <laughs> not to sound morbid. No, I, you know, there's a readership for that because I think that we're all, you know, obviously we're all part of humanity and we all have tragedies and. I think it brings us closer together as a community when we read about how other people handle tragedies. You know, it's like um, I'm going through a divorce. And so if I read about somebody else who's gone through a divorce, I feel less alone. Yeah. that's And I feel more part of uh, a community. And that's, I think, something maybe that I try to get across in my books and the subject matter of some of them. Yeah, I totally I th- I totally agree with that. It's it's interesting because, you know, like in the films of Woody Allen, they often don't have happy endings and he ends up alone. And some people find that depressing. <laughs> but I find that sort yeah. of an affirmation of, you know, like, yeah, we all go through this. And in a weird way, I find a warmth and comfort within uh, in in that. Exactly. Well said. I, I, I agree. And then there's the magazine, The Sun. I don't know if you've ever read The Sun. I was... Uh, and- Seeking out more Poe Ballantyne, so I went to it. <laughs> yeah. That's how I found Poe Ballantyne, is I am a reader of The Sun, and it's similar subject matter. And um, I had read numerous essays about Poe Ballantyne, I mean, by Poe Ballantyne, in The Sun. And then I thought, when I started Hawthorne, I thought, I'm going to send an email to Poe Ballantyne because I've read so many pieces, i got to think he has material. Voila. I am now, 13 years later, still working with Poe Ballantyne. Had he not had a formal uh, book published before you? He did. Well, no, he didn't have a formal book published before me. He had a contract with Houghton Mifflin. And what happened is one of Poe's short stories, because he wrote short fiction as well as a lyrical essay, and he won a Best American Short Story And um, Houghton Mifflin contacted him and said, we'd like to publish a collection of yours. And he said, okay. And then um, he didn't get along well with his editor. And so it never came to publication. And then a year or two later was when he got my email saying, hey, I think you might have some material. And he said, well, yes, I do. See, that's great. That's, that's, to me, that's a story of hope because it's like, to me, it's like I read his stuff, and I'm like, "How did it take so long for people to to catch on to him?" It's it's that I know is baffling. And Matt, it still is. I'm still pushing. I'm still pushing Poe. His audience. He is the one of the most underread authors in America, and one of the reasons why Love and Terror has an introduction by Cheryl Strayed is because we wanted to introduce him to a larger audience. And Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild, obviously hit a nerve. And Cheryl has been a fan of Poe for years and years. And so when I asked her if she would be willing to write an introduction, she immediately said yes. And she's been championing his cause as well. She's been incredibly generous with her support of Poe Ballantyne because she also thinks, like you and I do, it's like, how can this writer not have an audience? 
Yeah, it's it's I mean it's just so strange. I mean, I would have to say he's my favorite living writer and oh. I I mean, I've constantly tell people like and especially lately cuz I revisited some of his stuff and I'm uh I actually hadn't read his novels, which I just started uh yesterday. God clobbers us. Read God clobbers us all first cuz um the other the, ones. Uh, is the second part of it, yeah. Yeah, not yeah, that's not, not that it's a series. You could read them separately, but it's the same character. But and it's uh which immediately that book is like cuz I was kind of nervous to read his fiction just because I was so accustomed to his nonfiction and it was Yeah. Uh but it's it's equally as great and but it's just it's it, it's just baffling to me that there's uh, I mean I'm sure you know or are more aware of like there's other uh Underread writers as well. That str- is, uh, are there any names that come to mind of others? Um, you mean the big, bigger underknown? Yeah. Well, George Saunders is a is is a well known writer, but his last collection really hit, and so his audience got expanded. And um, is it Jane Salter? I think the older writer who's amazing. She's also probably. I mean, there's a whole cadre of. Uh, underappreciated or underknown writers, but you know what I think's happening in the with the big five. Now there's only five big five publishers. Um, is that for them, their mid list writers have to sell like forty thousand copies, and so if a writer has a fabulous craft and talent, if they don't sell, you know, to that bar then um, they don't get a lot of the publicity budget. They don't get a lot of marketing attention. And if you look at our catalog, you'll see what I hate midlist writers as a title, but we have quite a few writers who were with the big guys and they're now kind of trickling down to the independent presses like Hawthorne Books and Gray Wolf and um, Tin House. Um, for example, I have Karen Carbo for next year and she writes the Women Kick Ass series about Julia Childs and Coco Chanel, Georgia O'Keeffe. And Karen Carbo has only been uh, publishing with the bigger groups. Um, Tom Spanbauer, I have him for next year. Tom Spanbauer was with Grove Atlantic, and before that, he was with one of the big five. So he's another um, what they call mid-list writers who I have the opportunity to publish. El- Ariel Gore, same thing. I have Ariel Gore's memoir, The End of Eve, coming up for next spring, and she has only been with the bigger writers. And so what I'm seeing is a lot of these writers who have had a secure place with the bigger publishers, it's not as secure as it was. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. How, yeah. how, how satisfying is that for you, though, to, to find someone like uh, Poe Ballantyne or some of these other writers and help get their work out there? It's why I do what I do. I swear to God. I love the fact that Poe Ballantyne and I have been working together for 13 years. Another writer who is amazing is Lydia Yuknovich. We published The Chronology of Water, and that's one of our better sellers. She's amazing, and the fact that she didn't have a contract with a big publisher just boggles the mind to me. Her second book is Dora. It's a novel. And it's a historical mashup based on Dora Freud's case um, that, uh, what was her name? Ida Bauer. And Lydia Yuknovich is somebody that I got to think that the big guys might swoop her away, but her work is a little bit edgy. So maybe there's not a great home for her with the bigger guys. Oh, and Clown Girl, Monica Drake, I published her first book, Clown Girl, and she is amazingly talented, and that is one of our bestsellers also. And then a big house did swoop her up. Crown Books bought her new novel that just came out last fall called The Stud Book. And so Monica got a wonderful deal from Crown. She got like a $100,000 advance. And here at Hawthorne, our advances are only one to $3,000, which is typical, I think, for independent presses, maybe one to 5000 so Monica Drake got a $100,000 advance for her second novel, The Stud Book, and I was thrilled for her. It's like, great, of course you need to, <laughs> to leave Hawthorne and take this deal because it shines the light back on Hawthorne and also her first book, 
which we launched. Is that's and that's great, and it's and I I appreciate that attitude where you're like, oh, and it shines a light back on us because it's it's true because it's like if I read someone great, I'm gonna go and find the other stuff and exactly and you know and it's like I you know. I don't this I hope this doesn't sound kiss assy or whatever, but it's like because I appreciate Poe Ballantyne and what I've learned about your publishing company, like I'm not buying the books used or anything. I've I wanna support your company, so I'm buying you know oh, bless your heart. Well it, that's, seriously. That's I mean that's, that's that's the way it should be. <laughs> it's like That's my mission here with Hawthorne. I do not care if I make a lot of money. All I wanna do is find an audience for my books that lets me sustain myself. You know, like I need to pay my mortgage and I need to wear clothes and I need to drive my car. And I just need those basic needs met. And I need people like you, Matt, who appreciate the books and understand that if you do buy them new from a bookstore, not only are you supporting us, but you're supporting a bookstore and another industry. And, it does um like buying on Amazon does that is that less effective for you? I've heard mixed things about that. <clears throat> or do you not want Amazon? To... No, no. Amazon is not less effective for us. Um you know, they are a revenue stream for us. Um they have changed the face of publishing and they make it incredibly difficult for other book pub, other booksellers to um, compete, and I would like to see Amazon not have as much power as they do. I want to see the independent bookstores not have to struggle as badly as they are. I mean, they close every day. It was there was a time when Barnes and Noble and Borders were the Amazons, and I remember thinking, oh, these large um, superstores are going to hurt the industry. And now Borders is gone and Barnes and Noble is our biggest vendor. And I hope and pray that Barnes and Noble doesn't go under because if they do, Amazon is even stronger. I mean, they are like the snowball rolling down the hill and they keep winning. Yeah. That, that guy's kind of a mad evil genius. (laughs) Uh, now he's going to have drones. To, you know, he, he wants to have drones deliver books within an hour or something outrageous. Uh, wow, how lazy can we get? <laughs> it's like a I, yeah, instant gratification. <laughs> All you have to do is download it from iTunes if you have a Mac or an iPod, iPad. Excuse me. Um, I, um, so anyway. Yeah, I feel because uh, my show has an Amazon link, and if people buy on that, we get money back and i feel slightly morally conflicted because i got a big mouth about being uh anti-corporate <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. and i feel very hypocritical and it's uh it's uh i don't want to be uh you know a- you know what you could do maybe matt i don't know if this would work but maybe you could include an independent bookstore link as well like include pals on there and include barnes and noble i don't know if you could if you have an exclusive agreement but no, if you don't. didn't, well, then just put put a superstore on there and put an independent bookstore on there and cover, you know, give everybody a little bit of love. Yeah, I do. And I, Powell's is such a great... Uh, oh, I love Powell's. They're fabulous. Yeah, it's... Uh, They've been so supportive of our work. And uh, is, speaking of, like, publishing, so how do you feel, like, in an era of... Because uh, it is great we live in an era that, you know... People can just have a blog and they can get their writing out there. And and I know some people who even have the they just print up the books themselves. And I don't know how the hell they sell them, but they they sell them. <laughs> uh, do you think that's like? I mean, that's got to be. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, again, I mean, I there's more self publishing going on than ever before. There are more titles out there and fewer quantities of those titles being sold. I mean, the market is definitely flooded with reading material. Um, Author Solution was a big company who specialized in self-publishers, and guess who bought them? Penguin. Interesting. So, yeah, 
and this has been a while actually. And so self-publishing is bigger than ever, and a lot of self-publishers work with Amazon. I don't understand how a, a writer can be a self-publisher because as a writer, you need a team. You need a marketing team. You need a publicity team. You need an editorial team. You, you can, I don't understand how one writer can possibly get a book to a large audience. I mean, they do. There's a few, obviously, there's a few big titles. Um, you know, like Twi I think Twilight series started off as a, the first one was self-publishing. But what I noticed is the market success for self-publishers seem to be bought, seems to be when they're bought by a large press, when their work is contracted by a large press. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't. I yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, and it's like I mean, I don't trust my brain. I need people to look at everything I do, even at my even my grocery list. <laughs> I'm just like I just, right. I just don't have that brain. And uh, right, and a lot of writers are not salespeople. I mean, they're writers for a reason, and they could use an agent selling their work and promoting them. I mean, a lot of writers don't feel comfortable promoting themselves. Yeah, it's most creative people I know are there is that sort of like cringe at that it just they're not capable of doing it or it just doesn't it makes them uncomfortable. Right. That's uh, what they make publicists for. And uh and I actually I meant to follow up with this uh, with the when we were talking about uh certain writers having a hard time getting out there like Poe Ballantyne and stuff and is there is there an element of like um where it's very it just from friends I had who went to uh, went through the writing program at Iowa is it Iowa State? There's a big fancy writing program and but uh, yeah, Iowa. It just becomes very sort of insidery, according to my one friend. It's like you know, it's like you almost go to those schools to make connections, and then every it sort of just spins out. And is there sort of and even Poe I think has a kind of a rant about the sort of the academia of of publishing and. Um, is that is that and does that exist and is that hurting some of these writers? I think you're right. No, I think you're right about that because in the the bigger publishing world, you need an agent and you have to get an agent and that's step one. And then that agent has to sell you. And uh, if you have a connection to other writers who might introduce you to their agent or refer you or recommend you then that's a much better position than, sending, position than sending in a blind query letter. Blind query letters don't usually get one too far. Yeah, that's and actually that's an uh, interesting point because I think there are a lot of people who don't, don't even know where to begin to, if they're a writer. Like, and it's like, how does someone go about that? Right. Um, I mean, is and a lot of agents already have stables of writers. So not only do you have to find uh, agents who are looking for new writers, but how do you know that they're there? I mean, agents don't advertise, and it's almost impossible, actually, to find their contact. Well, it's not impossible. But, um, yeah, you're right. It, it certainly helps to have an introduction. Because it's, it's also what's interesting to me is uh, probably – I think it's three of the books I've read this year that are the most, or authors that I've read this year that are the most interesting, didn't come from formal writing backgrounds. One guy was a lifer in prison, <laughs> the, and the other guy's like a former musician and, uh, you know, drug addict. And and I don't, and Poe didn't really formally study as well, did he? No. I mean, he's more of. Nope. An, and it's interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, "In Case We Die" by Danny Bland that came out this year, uh, but he, he was on his book tour and he was saying like he I forget where he was, but it was like the first time that there was a lot of writers from and students and teachers from this one university, and they were asking him like technical writing questions, and he's like, I, I don't know, I just wrote this. He, you know, he just I he always just read. I thought that was really interesting. Because it's like dudes like him and Poe and um, this guy who's in prison, they just kind of lived these full. And well, I think there's. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, no. I think that there's storytellers. I think there's storytellers, Matt. You know, like Poe Valentine is a storyteller, and there are many writers who are storytellers first, craft second, and then there are writers who are 
very trained and very versed in crafts. And those storytellers benefit by having an editor, I think. Um, not all storytellers are great writers. Not all crafted writers are great writers. <laughs> but I do see I do see a difference between um, some well-crafted writers and some storytellers, if that makes sense. And I think that Poe is an amazing storyteller. Yeah, and I, I know we keep going back to Poe, but I mean, there's lines of his that are just absolutely, you know, they're, they're beautiful, and you have to sit in them for a while. I know. Yeah. He's amazing. He honestly has, he's such a talented writer, I think. Talented storyteller. Yeah. And like, what are, just as a, as a editor, like, what do you, like, what are, for like a young novelist, what do you, what are like often the biggest errors or missteps that young writers make when trying to piece together a novel? Well, one of my, one of my pet peeves are similes. I hate similes. Um, I think debut writers often dabble in too many similes and um, they might become a little bit too enamored with the language. So it's a little overwritten or it can be flowery or purple. And I think that's something that um, new writers do. And if they have a good editor, they might delete a few adjectives and delete a few similes, and you know, yeah. and make it more straightforward. But that's my personal preference. And every editor, you know, has their own style. Like I said, I mean, I, I buy what I like to read. And if I I've received some manuscripts that I've bought and I will have a conversation with the writer and say, all right, as an editor, here's my editorial vision for your work. And I want to make sure that you're comfortable with it. And if you're not, then I'm not the editor for you. I mean, I would, I, that's the first step. If I feel like it's a little overwritten or if there's a few too many adjectives or similes, and I'll say that up front. And if they're like, Oh yeah, no, no. I'm, you know, open to being collaborative, then we might clean up the text a bit. And once I buy a book and I have an agreement, I would never make a writer do something they say don't want to. I mean, my editing style is here's what I think would make this more readable. And then the final word comes from the author. Oh, you give them the final word? Um, mostly, but like I said, if I see some issues in a manuscript, I will say up front before we begin working together, here's what I see. And if we're not on the same page, then no hard feelings, but I'm not the editor for you. And most of them are like, yes, of course I want to clean up the text, you know? And then I have writers who are so well-crafted, like Scott Nadelson, he turns in his manuscripts. We've published four books with him. And I don't even move a comma. That's amazing. And other manuscripts are a little, are right. And some manuscripts are a little more rough than that, but you can see the gem, like the diamond and the rough in that manuscript. And that excites me as an editor. That's, that's really, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, I'm always, it always makes me happy when you, when you discover someone who is that, um, you know, pro the artist and the work and that it gets excited. I, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I deal with a lot of dopes. <laughs> so it's like, it's very refreshing. <laughs> like it's just, I, I, I've had meetings where I just look at the person at the other side of the desk and I'm like, how the, how the fuck did you end up there? <laughs> it's like, you're an absolute moron. Oh, you'd be surprised. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Some people who are in positions of making decisions and, and you wonder, oh, that's interesting. Oh yeah, it's 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 amazing. I'm not uh, bald and gray. <laughs> <laughs> I it's I really should be. Maybe it's the booze, Rhonda. I don't know. Keep it. Yeah. Hey, that will preserve you. Don't give that up. <laughs> and it's like I'm also like, I believe Poe refers to himself as a late bloomer, and I'm always kind of like, I don't know what the what the. Do you have a theory why there's so many writers who are late in their sort of discovery of, is it just a life experience? That's a good question. That is a really good, I don't know why Poe's a late bloomer. I think he means it on a emotional level and a developmental level as well in his life. You know, like I think he feels like it took him a few decades to understand 
himself and others and relationships with them. Um, he's been writing for years and years and years, though. Um, yeah, I don't know why some writers end up being late bloomers. Yeah. Maybe they had other lives, like you say. Maybe they had other lives that took precedent. Yeah, it's interesting. And and but at getting back to was it books like something that was that a childhood thing that you loved, or was there like a specific book when you first that really first grabbed you and pulled you into that world? I have my grandfather taught me how to read when I was two, and what he did is. He would go to the grocery store and get boxes, and then he would cut the boxes into flashcards, big, huge flashcards, and with a black Sharpie, write names. Like he would write clock, dog, Grammy, grandpa. And we had this box, and inside the box were all his cardboard flashcards. And um, so the time that I spent with my grandfather learning how to read, I think, set me up to love reading my entire life. And when I was a kid, I had a ton of books and I still do have them. I had Pinocchio, Black Beauty. I had all those basic books and I started there. And then they had this series that you could buy at a grocery store for young readers. I have the whole, you know, the whole collection. It's like the Britannia. I mean, uh, what is it? Uh, I'm spacing on the name, the encyclopedia series. Is it Britannica? yeah, I think it is. But this was a called a series, and they're in my dining room, and it's um, for young readers. And it had, you know, um, Robinson and Crusoe and just all those stories. And so I started there. And then I moved around a lot as a kid. I went to a lot of different schools. And every time we moved and I was in a different school, I spent a lot of time in a library. I mean, not only did I like to read, but um, being a new kid, I could always go to library. Um you know, as I was making friends and easing into a, you know, the community there. And when I was in high school, I read Schlock. I read Daniel Steele and Harold Robbins. I read all those. I, you know, I mean, I read the books that my English teacher told me to read, but I read a lot of crap. Yeah. And I loved it. You know, sometimes. Sidney Sheldon. Remember Sidney Sheldon? Oh, I do. Yes. And um, Lawrence. Lawrence Sanders was his name. He did all the thrillers. I de- they I made a movie with Frank Sinatra as a detective, and then there was a killer who was ice-picking people in New York Street. Lawrence Sanders, like the first Deadly Sin, I think is what it was. Oh, I read all yes. the Deadly Sin by that. Lawrence Sanders. Yeah, and so that's the kind of stuff I read in high school. And then from there, I finally started wading into um, Penguin's Vintage contemporary vintage series. You know, I remember from the 80s, like it had um, Tamala Janowitz and Jay McInerney and Less Than Zero by Brett Easton Ellis. And then so I moved into those. That caught my attention. And then from there, I started reading more literary fiction. And I lived in San Francisco, and I would often frequent City Lights. Oh, yeah. And I got into poetry. Yes, I got into poetry, and I discovered Blacks Sparrow Press, and anything that Black Sparrow put out, I would buy and read. Yeah, that was that uh, publishing. I forget Wanda. Wanda, crap. What's Wanda her name? Coleman? Yes. I have every book the woman wrote. Diane Wachowski and uh, Chuck. I mean Chuck Charles Bukowski. Yeah. Um, somebody gave me. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I just somebody gave me No 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 go ahead. Somebody gave me Bukowski in high school. I think I was like 16 and my brain mel- <laughs> my, yeah. it melted cuz I'd never yeah. it was just like you know that was when the I was just like oh there is a world I am completely unaware of and I want to find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well not only is there a world that I was completely unaware of it's a world that I didn't want to physically put myself into but by reading I could be there and be fascinated by you know a dangerous world or I don't I, you know I, I'm not an alcoholic but this is how an alcoholic might live or I'm not mentally ill but I can read other people's worlds safely you know Yeah I unfortunately kind of got ankle deep in there not knee deep but i got ankle deep in that world a little bit but 
what, mm-hmm. just CD, yeah. the seedy world of Chicago. Why did you move around so much? Were you yeah. a military kid? Or were you a... Well, my parents, my parent, my father's from Los Angeles and my mother was from San Diego. And my dad was in the Navy in San Diego and that's how they met and got married. And then they divorced when I was nine. And so my mother and I moved back to San Diego and lived with her mother. And then I moved back in with my father and his new family and then so on and so forth. And then my mother married another Navy man who kept getting stationed to various places. And so when I was living with my mother, I moved with them. And, um, yeah, so it all added up to about 14 different schools by the time I got out of high school. That's uh, That had to be a challenge, I would assume. And Well, I think it taught me how to um, be social. I mean, if you're going to a different <laughs> school every year, you better make friends, man, you know? And so it taught me how to be social and how to be a good salesperson. And it taught me to um, lean on books and literature. You know, that was a world I could escape into. Yeah. So I wouldn't change anything because it did teach me how to be a good salesperson. And um, I think in that situation, you either get comfortable walking into a room and introducing yourself and shaking hands, or you will do the opposite maybe and become an introvert. Yeah, I guess it sounds like maybe you landed in some good high schools. <laughs> everybody, I just feel like everybody in my school was cruel, <laughs> and that made me not want to socialize much. Well, I hung out with all the stoners because when I, I graduated from high school in 1980, and so all you had to do was, I think I started smoking cigarettes when I was 12 years old, and so whenever you would go to a new school, if you were a smoker, there's your group. You know, all those kids smoking are hanging out in one place. All you got to do is join them and light a cigarette, boom, instant friends. Oh, see? That's where I went wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. What you could have had it by now. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, I picked it up later and got. But what what wound you up in uh, Portland, Oregon? Um, I was working for the Overseas Printing Corporation, and I wanted to leave and take all my clients with me. And one of my clients was here in Portland, and she owned a very small press. And she said, "Hey, you want to get into publishing? How about you move here?" You work with me in this little publishing company, and you start your own business. And I thought that sounded great. So I moved to Portland, and that partnership did not work out. It lasted for a year, but I did start my business, Print Vision. And um, I went to graduate school, and I realized when I was done with graduate school that I wanted to get back into publishing and then picked up with Hawthorne. And Portland was just kind of a nice fluke. I left San Francisco for Portland. And the first year I was here, I thought, oh man, that was a mistake. I really missed San Francisco. That felt like my, my spiritual home. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, and then all of a sudden I met such a great group of people here in Portland. And this is a huge literary city and a huge artist community. There's a lot of writers and artists. And I just fell in love with Portland after about a year and I'm still here. Yeah. It's, uh, and I've, it's interesting because I feel the same about San Francisco. I've never lived there, but it's just there's something real magical about that place. But but Portland is, I don't know, Portland's great. I there's so much, and the the food world there is really quite uh, getting big. Oh, it's amazing! Yeah, our editor and public and uh, publicity manager Liz Crane is a foodie and. She, we're actually publishing her book, The Food Lover's Guide to Portland, next fall. It was originally published by Sasquatch, and then the rights reverted back to Liz, and so now we're going to do it. And Liz has a book out right now called Toro Bravo, and it's based on John Gorman and his restaurant here, and it's published by McSweeney's. And she just literally, today's her first day back in the office after being on book tour on the East Coast in, in Seattle. And food is huge, and um, we would like to do some more food books, and Liz will be the editor of those books. Yeah, there's, it's. I have a number of uh, – my girlfriend got me uh, the Joe Beef book for my birthday, and I don't know if you've seen that book. Or, or No, not yet. I'll oh, look it up. Uh, it's really great. But it's like those guys are – they're like lunatic food 
guys. <laughs> and it's like they like serve food on, you know, old radios. And uh, but their book is like also recipes. But then they did, like teach you how to make a smoker in your backyard. It's like all kinds of weird it's pretty, pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's cool yeah. to see like, uh, you know, like recipe book, but then it's infused with, you know, crazy stories and how to do other stuff. I was trying not to swear there. <laughs> I'm trying at 45. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to cut down on yeah. swearing. Um, <laughs> well, um, is there just, uh, we'll be wrapping up shortly. I was just wondering if there's just, if there's any sort of uh, advice you would give say young writers or writers in general as a person who probably knows more than most people? Yeah, that's tough. I think, um, I think it's really tough to break in at this point. It becomes tougher all the time, but I think, um, trying to find a good agent is always helpful. And if you're open to going to the small presses, um, I, if I were a new writer, I would look in all the books that I really like that I think are similar in style to my work, and I would see in the acknowledgments who is the agent of that writer and send them a letter and say, I love Joe Schmo's book about boating, and my work is similar, and you represent Joe, so I think you might want to see my work. And that's where I would start is find comp titles, figure out who the agents are for those comp titles, and also who are the publishers and the editors of those books you admire and start there. Yeah, it's a, it's a baffling it's, – and it's kind of – it's heartbreaking to hear you, you say that it's, um, it's getting harder and harder to break in. I think it is. And is it, yeah. do these agents, do they read these letters or do a lot of them end up in the wastebasket? I don't know. I think it depends on the agent. I think if you sent something to Andrew Wiley, it would end up in the wastebasket. But if you send something to a younger writer, like Seth Fishman is Monica Drake's agent and he's great. I mean, there's a lot of younger, I don't want to say, I don't want to define them by age. There's a lot of agents who um, kind of gravitate to the newer writers and the newer works. That's why I think it's a good idea to, to find those books that you admire and figure out who are the people working with that author. Because it's always, there's always the sort of old uh, saying of how good work always finds its place and from what I've seen in Los Angeles, that ain't true. <laughs> I don't, I unfortunately don't believe that either. I think good work can and does find it, but I don't think all good work does. I think there's a lot of good work that doesn't. I some, That's the frustrating part. Yeah. I mean, I've thought of like, I mean, how many great pieces of writing in it, whether it be screenplays or novels or how many of those just, probably just vanished into the abyss of <laughs> of nothingness because somebody didn't you know because and and a lot of yeah. creative people are so easily discouraged or insecure that it's, yeah it's really heartbreaking right and that's what i love to do as a publisher is find those people god bless you i mean it's it's, it's really <laughs> i mean it's true because it's like uh, there's so many brilliant people that I, you know, that I've known in my life. I grew up like as a kid at, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the second city theater in Chicago, but I grew up around that environment yeah. and seeing so many brilliant writers and performers just sort of, you know, uh, not do anything. And it's just like, how the hell does that happen? Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's funny because I bumped into a guy the other day at a farmer's market, and he was like one of the most brilliant character performers I'd ever seen could make me cry. And, you know, he it just – I just – it's – I don't know. It bums bums me out because you just – you know, we were trained sort of to that like, oh, everybody finds their home. And sometimes I just think that home is uh, working in an office depot. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I think that is the case for some people, yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad we could sort of wind this down on a real depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> Edit something else that was fun and put it at the end. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, just uh, so, how can people um, find find you, or not you specifically, your address, but like Hawthorne Books and um, your your website and your Twitter and all those things, so people can seek out some of these great authors that we've been talking about and your company. Yes, well, HawthorneBooks.com is our website, and all of our books are there, the entire catalog, and they can also buy books directly from us. We're also distributed by Publishers Group West, and um, that is national distribution, and they're amazing. They do such a great job for us. And our Twitter, if you put in Hawthorne Books, you'll find also the Twitter um, or put my name in and Twitter comes up, Facebook for Hawthorne comes up and Hawthorne uh, website. Great. Rhonda, thank you very much for taking out the time to do this. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I thought it was really great. Oh, yeah, it was fun. It was great talking with you, Matt. Anytime, give me a call. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please uh, mill them out about Feral Audio and uh, check out some of the other shows. Uh, it's uh, really good. Happy holidays.
compliance of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.